Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is Dark Age Economics. This is a combination episode, and we're combining three episodes on this one. We're covering travel, supply and demand, and taxation. I hope you enjoy it. In the 11th century, Ingolf made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He was accompanied by 30 fat horsemen when he set forth. They moved through Germany and Greece on their way to the Holy Land. When Ingolf returned, he was joined by barely 20 emaciated pedestrians. Travel was serious business, and Ingolf's trip was over 500 years after the point that we've been speaking about. So you can only imagine how tough it must have been to get from place to place in the early Anglo-Saxon period. Now, pilgrimages are fairly extreme trips. Traveling across Britain isn't like going to Jerusalem. And even if you went on an international trip from Britain, you still might have more luck than going on pilgrimage, provided that you stayed on the more well-trod paths. For example, if you're going to Rome. But if you were in a far-flung territory like our little island, and you just wanted to get from one end to the other, well, things could get a little hairy. And here's the thing. People tend to think of bandits, dangerous crossings, weather, snakes if you're playing Oregon Trail, and all that sort of stuff to be the major problems of travel during this period. And that's if they think about problems at all. A lot of times when you talk about travel during this period, people tend to just assume that they could travel as easily as we can travel now, just a little slower. But that's not the case. There was all kinds of problems. But there's also a significant danger when it came to travel that is often overlooked. Food. In fact, to go back to the pilgrimage issues, Boniface was quite worried about how many female pilgrims, who ran out of food and provisions on their way to the Holy Land, resorted to prostitution in order to survive. Travel wasn't a matter of just mapping things out and making sure you had enough gas to get there. It was a huge undertaking, and food was at the heart of it. Now, thirst might have also played a role in middle-aged travel in general, but as far as Britain goes, it probably wasn't too big of a problem. Britain isn't exactly an arid climate, and even now the water table is pretty good even though we've been tapping it a great deal. Back then, there must have been plenty of water available, though how safe that water was would be another matter. Furthermore, while ownership was being placed upon land, it doesn't seem that water had private ownership placed upon it. So there's your silver lining. Even the poorest of travelers probably didn't have to go thirsty. They just had to go hungry. So let's get back to food. And I should mention that for certain members of society, there are special privileges when it comes to travel, specifically for clergy and those acting under the crown. But to start with, we're just going to talk about what the average person had to deal with. We're not going to concern ourselves right away with what the monks were dealing with or what the crown was dealing with, just your average traveler. So for your average dark age traveler, how would you go about getting food on the road? Imagine if you needed to travel 180 miles today. For example, If I had to go from Portland to Seattle on foot through wild territory and dealing with odd customs of our tenuous allies, the Washingtonians, how would I manage? Well, to start with, you might think that hunting would suffice. But as we learned about last week, hunting was no easy feat. You had the issue of lands being claimed. You had the issue of availability of good tools. You had the issue of training. For example, what do I know about hunting? How effective could I possibly be? I'm a podcaster. And while there weren't any Dark Age podcasters, there were plenty of people who weren't regular hunters in the Dark Ages. So you have that problem too. And you also have the issue of time. I have places I need to be. Just hanging out in the woods isn't exactly the safest option for me, nor is it the most efficient. It's going to put my travel far behind. I run the risk of getting sick. I run the risk of maybe getting mauled by a bear or something. It's just not that great of an idea. So even if I knew how to hunt... Would I spend the time necessary to track down and hunt some game? Would it be worth the expenditure of time and energy? What if I didn't find any game? Or what if it wandered into the king's land where I can't get it? Or what if I go to the effort and track it down and I'm running after it with my spear and I wound it, but I can't manage to bring it down? Is it really worth it for me to do that? I mean, that's a lot of energy I've just expended and my stomach is still empty. It seems kind of a risky thing to do. Or let's say I'm an average crofter who doesn't know how to hunt larger game. Or maybe I just can't find unclaimed woods to hunt in. Maybe I can go and lay snares along the path, but then what? 
Am I just going to hang around for a couple days and hope I get lucky? I mean, it can't really go too far because I don't want the catch to get stolen and I don't want to get my snare stolen either, but I can't stay too close either because I don't want to scare away all the game. So I'm playing a delicate balance here and I'm wasting time and there are no guarantees. It's not the best of options, is it? And it's important to remember that these are real people we're talking about. Just because it was a long time ago doesn't mean that everybody had the skills of a Paleolithic hunter. And funny side note here, there are a surprising number of people who confuse Paleolithic Britain with Anglo-Saxon Britain. I mean, you run into all kinds of interesting questions when you cover this period, and a lot of them sound very similar to questions regarding cavemen. Anyway, so we're talking about real people here who are in a stratified society. Maybe it's not as stratified as Roman Britannia, but it still is stratified. So just because it was a long time ago doesn't necessarily mean that everybody knew how to hunt. And it's also a good idea to keep travel times in mind. Some sources have indicated that you can get about 12 miles a day, but that was actually probably a pretty good pace. Look at it this way. If you have a flat road and aren't heavily encumbered, and you're in good shape, and you don't have to stop for any particular reason, your pace will probably be around 3 miles an hour. But we aren't really talking about perfect roads here. And you have to deal with river crossings and all manner of other things. So things would slow down significantly. And there's a good chance that you're not going to be walking for a straight 12 hours a day. So to cover the 180 miles it's going to take me to get from Portland to Seattle, it'll probably take me at least two weeks. And even if I was on Watling Street, I wouldn't really be hauling ass. And besides, if you're going that long of a distance, you're probably bringing stuff with you. Things to sell, maybe, or at the least, maybe provisions. So that's going to slow you down as well. So it's going to take you a long time. Which brings us to our first possible way to deal with the length of time on the road. Packing a lunch. Now, bringing food with you is a pretty obvious choice. And in that situation, you would probably want to bring something that would keep for a while, but would still provide nourishment. It's been suggested that hardtack was probably used. After all, it would have been known to the Anglo-Saxons at around this time. Hardtack is basically a cracker on steroids. It's very, very hard, hence the name. And it's so dense that they might have needed to soak it in water before they could actually eat it. But on the upside, it keeps for ages. We're talking months. It's essentially really bad lambus bread. But the problem is that transporting enough food for a journey, even if it's just hardtack, would be a huge pain and might make the trip nearly impossible. The longer the trip, the more provisions would be needed, which might make you a tempting target for some rather unscrupulous men that you meet along the way. Which might raise the need for protection, which would mean that you'd need more provisions to keep them fed, which would slow you down even more. So packing a lunch for a long trip might not have been the best option. For a trip that only took a day or so, fasting actually might have been a choice. You just tough it out, eat when you get there, and then tough it out again until you get home. That's a possibility. And if you're traveling on religious matters, it might even carry with it a certain holy nature as well. But it really wasn't the best of options for longer trips. Not unless you were an ascetic or you really felt like going on diet. So if you had something to trade or had money, there were other options. For example, once alehouses came into being, they were one potential point of nourishment for a traveler. But it seems that alehouses were primarily focused upon drink rather than food. Now, it's been argued that food might have been available, but it wouldn't have been the purpose of the location. The purpose of the location would be to provide, of course, ale. But you might have been able to bargain with a location owner for a meal. However, in that situation, you would probably just be sharing some food with a property owner. You know, you'd basically just be sitting down and having dinner with them. It's doubtful that it would have been a situation where you'd make an order for food and just waited for someone to bring it to you. This wasn't a roadside diner. It wasn't even really a pub. And to make matters worse, they also carried with them a certain level of danger. So here's the thing. Alehouses have always had a reputation for violence and conflict. You probably already had that suspicion after playing D&D or reading Game of Thrones. After all, anyone who goes to the inn at the crossroads usually has a pretty tough time of it. But seriously, alehouses have always been trouble. Part of the reason for that is that alehouses were community gathering spots. It's where the locals got together and socialized. And they also drank. 
And we're talking about a pretty insular and isolated time in British history. And then here you come with your weird accent and strange behavior, and you're asking for food and an alehouse? This isn't the lamb house, it's the alehouse. What exactly is your problem here, friend? So there's a significant risk of danger there, and this also ties in nicely to how the people of this era would have viewed travel. Basically, if you're going any serious length of distance, it was a pretty daunting prospect. You were leaving your community, the protection of your lord, and your stable food supply. The feasting hall is behind you, and now you are among strangers. This was a scary time to be on the road. But although wanderlust wasn't a common virtue of the time, people still did need to travel from time to time. And you couldn't just have people getting into fights all the time at alehouses. And there was a market for providing food and beds to random travelers. And this gave rise to guest houses, which were designed to cater, of course, to travelers. So if you had a way to pay for it, and you were lucky enough to have a guest house on the way to your destination, that might solve your problems. These locations would provide you with food as well as somewhere to sleep. And as a bonus, they weren't a place where the community would congregate, so you didn't have to be the sole outsider in the middle of a potentially violent clique. On the other hand, there probably were other travelers there, so it wasn't exactly the safest place in the world to be. You had people from a bunch of different cultures mixing in a small location during a time of great fear and xenophobia. It might have been a little bit dangerous. In fact, in Wales, an owner of a guest house was responsible for all the guest's property except for his knife, sword, and trousers. Yeah, you heard that right. The owner wasn't responsible if you lost your pants. This might strike you as odd, but think about it. If you're staying in a strange place in a dangerous era, you probably should always know where your knife, sword, and pants are. So maybe this was a matter of the law saying, if you're stupid enough to lose your pants or your weapons, you're on your own. And that law has ripples in Welsh culture today. For example, do you know of any Welshmen who can't find their pants in a pinch? I thought not. So if you had a way to pay for it, you might end up leaving most of your provisions behind and simply stop at alehouses and guesthouses along the way. But the world during this period was significantly different than what we're accustomed to today. Today, you can't throw a rock without hitting a diner alongside a major road. But in the Dark Ages, there's a good chance that people would have to carefully plan their trips to make sure that they had places to eat and places to stay along their journey. And that, of course, would also add time to their trips. Now again, keep in mind that we're just talking about the average person. Religious and political figures had other options, and we'll get to those later. Okay, so what else could you do? Well, you could hope for hospitality, either from fellow Englishmen or from the church, as a side note, sanctuary is a term that's often thrown around and it's generally misused. In this era, if you were getting sanctuary for whatever reason, you were specifically to not receive food. And you could also only stay for a specific period of time. So if you thought you could just trick the church and claim sanctuary, think again. But don't despair. There is always hospitality. So hospitality, how did that work? Well, generosity was a virtue long before the rise of Christianity. We only need to look to Beowulf to see examples of how providing hospitality was something of a heroic duty. Was this because everyone was nice? Maybe. But this is a period of great strife, and an even greater amount of chest beating. So this tendency was probably less philanthropic, and much more close to the Roman habit of patronage. Basically, it was a way to brag about your wealth and status without bragging about your wealth and status. Of course, later on, providing hospitality would be seen as a religious duty mandated by the church, but in this early period, it might have been done out of pride. And actually, that carries with it some social implications that might not be immediately obvious. If someone is offering charity out of pride, they'll probably only offer it to someone who is either of high standing, like a religious person or an emissary, or someone who is terribly and visibly disadvantaged. Both provide the sort of optics that make for good propaganda. You're either saying, look at how great I am that I can offer you food, and even though you don't need it, I'm pointing out that I'm pretty awesome and definitely more awesome than you. Or you're offering it to somebody who everybody feels sorry for, and then they look at you and think, wow, what a great guy. But giving a meal to a commoner who's just passing through and happens to be hungry, but he or she isn't starving and they don't have any serious social standing, and, and don't have any visible impairments that would make them particularly notable, well, 
chances are, in that situation, that commoner is just going to be sent packing on their way, at least in the earlier period. Now, like I said, later on, charity became something of a religious mandate. In fact, the Pope later instructed the bishops to allocate a quarter of their income to hospitality. That's a sizable chunk, and it's the same amount that they allocated for maintenance of their buildings. So we're talking a good amount of money there. And some monasteries even had guest houses on their grounds, which indicates that at least some of them carried out those duties. And overall, monasterial hospitality sounds pretty great. First, your feet would probably be washed, which of course ties in with religious stories. And then you might be given some warm wine. After that, you would probably be provided with some food and somewhere to rest, and you could stay for about three days. Overall, it's not too bad of a deal. It's certainly better than what I offer out-of-town friends. And I'll tell you this, if you're couch surfing at Shea Jeffers, you're going to have to wash your own damn feet. So yeah, hospitality at a monastery sounds pretty great if you can get it. But here's the thing. Like I keep reminding you, these people weren't so terribly different from us. So let's go back to our example of the average person trying to get 180 miles. It's a very long way, and after several days' journey, there's a good chance that you wouldn't know anyone. After a week's worth of travel, unless you regularly made this trip, you could be pretty certain that you wouldn't know anyone at all. Now maybe if you're in the Christian period, you might be able to go to a monastery and be lucky enough to be taken in. But that wasn't a guaranteed thing. They might have already fulfilled their duties, or maybe the abbot was greedy and uncharitable, or maybe you missed the monastery because you weren't familiar with the area and you just passed right by it. There's all kinds of ways that things could go wrong. So let's imagine that you haven't found a monastery. You haven't seen one for days. You haven't seen that guest house for days either. And now you see a cottage up ahead. Well, hospitality isn't just for monks, so maybe these people will take you in. And there are references to people working in fields offering food to travelers. So it seems like it might have happened, but it's not a guarantee, and it also might have just been a story to inspire kind behavior rather than an indication of the general customs and attitudes of the people at the time. The people might have been kind, but they might also regard you with fear. I mean, think about it from their perspective. You're a dirty traveler. You're probably armed. You aren't bound to the people through blood or community. You're a complete outsider. And yet you want a handout. And this is an era of hand to mouth. And of course, the Lord is going to be wanting food rent here pretty soon. Maybe the people are kind, but they probably are also worried about making it through to the next harvest. They might also be concerned that they'll get a reputation for offering handouts, and then everyone will come knocking at their door. And they might be xenophobic and see you as a threat. Or they might just be greedy. There are all sorts of reasons why you might get turned away when you come asking for hospitality. And then there is the added aspect of danger. I mean, maybe you just get turned away, but there's also the chance that things could turn violent. Maybe they had a bad experience with a prior traveler. You don't know, and you have no idea what you're walking into. So chances are that if you spent any time on the road, you quickly learned not to expect any kindness from strangers. In fact, there's a young boy who told Cuthbert that he never expected any kindness from strangers, so this seems like it was a pretty common thing. But men of the cloth seemed to get a little bit of a free pass, and this actually led to an odd sort of scam. The itinerant monk scam. Basically, for a while, the church was having a hell of a time clamping down on lazy monks, or people just pretending to be monks, who were just taking advantage of hospitality in an effort to see the country. We'll get more into this when we talk about religion, but this was a period in time where a good number of the church leaders couldn't even recite the Ten Commandments. So as you might imagine, in this situation, it would be pretty easy to impersonate a monk. You really just needed a tonsure, some robes, and a few accessories. And unlike our example of the average traveler, men of God were less likely to be treated with suspicion and more likely to receive offers of hospitality. And then they'd be able to stay for three days, enjoy good food and drink, and then be on their way to find their next mark. You'd be able to see the country, completely avoid work, and be treated with respect everywhere you went. As scams go, this one is pretty fantastic. On the continent, this problem was rampant. All manner of so-called monks claimed to be on pilgrimage and then would just go around looking for free food and drink. Similarly, this seems like it was a problem in England as well, since the laws of Witchred of Kent dealt with the situation. And actually, in addition to scamming fake monks and weird strangers, there's another reason why hospitality might not be readily available. 
and it's the issue of laws. There is a significant fine for giving hospitality to a fugitive. So in our example, that family doesn't know you from Adam. Are they really going to take the chance that you're a decent person and not a fugitive, murderer, or some other unsavory fellow? It seems like a big risk. I don't think they're going to take the chance. Honestly, I think if someone knocked on your door and asked to go and crash out in your spare room, you probably wouldn't take the chance now. These people aren't that different from us. They had the same fears of outsiders that most of us do. Now here's the thing. Providing hospitality to the king and his agents was required. If you wanted to stay at your home, you damn well better let him. But for anyone else, except for those acting under orders from the crown, it was pretty much up to you. But we'll get into the royal privilege in a later episode. But there's something that I want to flesh out a little bit more before I finish this episode up. Namely, the importance of status. In the pre-Christian days, hospitality was a heroic thing, and as such, it was likely to be offered to people who really didn't need it. It's a matter of, look how powerful I am, I can give you this, thus making you feel indebted to me. It wasn't really to help out people, it was to show off. There probably were other instances of hospitality, and those instances might have been nicer, but on the whole, if it was based upon the heroic concept, well, that's pretty much pride, and pride requires good optics. So if that's the case, a significant part of this hospitality would actually just be exchanging it between the upper classes. And then when we get into the issue of monasteries, your best bet of getting hospitality from a monastery was to be a monk. So again, there's the issue of an insider's club here. And then you have the issue of hospitality from the common people. Well, given the dangers implicit within it, hospitality probably would only be offered to people who are known to the family, people of the cloth, or maybe to people who appear to be of high enough class to not seem as much of a risk. You know, people who seem like they're too rich to be thieves, murderers, or fugitives. But what about the poor? There are references that seem to indicate that the poor were not in short supply. So what were they to do? Well, they typically wouldn't have fit the mold where hospitality would have been regularly available. They weren't passing through and asking for help. They were just in dire straits. Well, charity was something that also existed during this period, but it wasn't a regular thing. It was rather similar to how we do it today, actually. It was offered on a whim when the individual had both the resources on hand and the notion that it would be a nice thing to do. So while we've been talking about hospitality, I don't want you to fall into the trap of assuming that the poor were well taken care of. By and large, they are dealt with in a similar way as we do now, basically at random. Now, I know Christianity tends to take a beating in this podcast from time to time, such as the issue with monks and their weird orgies or fake monks running around couch surfing. But the emphasis on charity in the early church meant that in the later Anglo-Saxon period, things probably improved a little for the poor. So way to go, Christianity. It still wasn't so stable that they'd be able to rely upon it to live, but it probably was significantly better than the occasional gift from a random kindly villager. The point of this is to illustrate that despite all this hospitality that I've been speaking about, it still was something that was primarily enjoyed by the privileged members of society, meaning either people of special status or people with connections in the communities that they're passing through. So if you're traveling the distance from Portland to Seattle, you should probably plan on it taking about two to three weeks, and you really shouldn't rely upon hunting. Also, the distance is probably too great for you to pack all your supplies that would take you there and back, so you should probably map out a route that'll take you past monasteries and guest houses and bring enough wealth with you in order to be able to pay your way, since you really shouldn't be relying upon the kindness of strangers in these uncertain times. And of course, wherever you go, don't lose your knife, your sword, or your trousers. Now over the last month or so, we've been speaking in detail about food in the Dark Ages. As you know, diversified farms dotted the landscape, with even the larger ones probably having a mix of cattle, sheep, pigs, etc. In many ways, it sounded a lot like the idyllic rural life that we see in paintings and the like. Actually, the Venerable Bede in particular loved the pastoral nature of England, and I'm sure he would have loved Wales too. And all of this food production was a key part of British life, and as a result, understanding it is necessary to understanding the culture. But while much of the island was well-situated for farming, and food production was a major pillar of society, it doesn't mean that everyone lived on or worked on farms. This was a stratified society, and over time, that would continue. 
So now that we've covered in detail the production of food and drink, we're going to transition into the cultural aspects of how that food impacted society. And to start with, let's talk about the issues of supply and demand by focusing on the towns. Once the Anglo-Saxon culture was in full swing, we had, of course, towns. But the really interesting thing about them is how different they were from the towns we've been speaking about in the Romano-British period, and what that says about the culture that was developing on the island. As you might recall, under the Roman period, society revolved around towns. Sure, many of those towns were either co-opted from the Celts, or they developed organically around military installations, but once they developed, Roman life centered upon them. They are an entity of their own. In many ways, mid-Romano-British urban life had a lot in common with urban life in the Western world today. For example, many people move to cities because that's where the jobs are. Sure, it might be where the amenities are, or where loved ones are, or where the power is, but in general, a city is your best bet at getting your hands on that good old-fashioned filthy lucre. And that was true for the Romano-British, just as it's true today. And as a result, the towns from that era had an economic magnet effect all of their own, based largely on the simple fact that money and trade congregated there. Well, that stands in stark contrast to what would eventually come into being during the Anglo-Saxon period. Once the Anglo-Saxon towns started to form, they had a different flavor to them. Rather than being focused upon the town itself as an economic machine, what little references we can find seem to indicate that the Anglo-Saxon towns were more likely to focus upon a strongman or central figure as the economic powerhouse behind it. At the risk of annoying some listeners in the U.S., it seems that the Anglo-Saxons might have been the first to experiment with trickle-down economics. But what I think is most important about all of this is that we're seeing the beginnings of an English culture and organization of state functions that was rather distinct from the system that the Normans would eventually force upon the population in the 11th century. And the more we know about that old English culture and the political systems within it, the better we will be able to understand the political and cultural battles that would occur during the Norman period between the ruling classes and their Anglo-Saxon subjects. So let's get into it. Okay, how did England go from being focused upon towns to being focused upon central figures? Well, I think a good way to work it out is to try and imagine what we would do in their situation. Now, as we've spoken about in prior episodes, following the withdrawal of Rome, there was an eventual collapse, and then there was probably a migration of Germanic people, the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes. So let's imagine that we were a part of that early expansion. At first, when your people arrived, many of them were probably given plots of land in exchange for service, though there might have been some amount of land acquired through force as well. Well, if you were a leader from one of those early war bands, you probably would have wanted to take as much land as you could. More land means more area for farming, and as we've spoken about in prior episodes, food is a key pillar of society. It goes without saying that if you don't have it, you won't last very long. And as one of the Anglo-Saxons, you were also probably more focused upon food than many other people, given the fact that it seems that there's evidence that farms in your homeland were heavily impacted by climate change. So if you were one of those early migrants, you would probably be trying to take as much arable land as you could, and then you probably hand out temporary grants of that land to your followers, maybe in exchange for loyal service or for a portion of their produce grown each year. And actually, if we look farther into the future, we're going to find that land measurement would be determined by what would be needed to support a household for a churl. A churl, by the way, was the lowest level of free man in Anglo-Saxon society, and we're going to get more into that when we talk about class, status, and politics in later episodes. But for now, what's important to know is that the base measurement of land is called the hide. Well, a hide was determined by how much a churl would need to keep his household fed and the like. So, at least later in the Anglo-Saxon era, food production was central to the structure of society. And there's no reason to believe this was a new innovation. It was probably the natural evolution of the culture that came over with the first warbands. But what if you were leading one of those warbands, and you weren't given enough land to live on? Or what if so many people came over upon hearing of the temperate climate and the relative weakness of the locals, that you were quickly outstripping your ability to feed yourselves on the land that you were given? Well, from the record, we can be relatively certain that there were conflicts between the Britons and the Germanic settlers. 
So what happened to the land that was taken during these conflicts? It's hard to say because we don't have many records. But if I was leading the group, I think I would just try and oust the leadership and the main troublemakers. And then I'd try and hold on to the local peasantry. Since this was Anglo-Saxon times, that means I would enslave them. Now the reasoning behind this is that if I have people growing food, and they're giving a sizable portion of it to me and my warband, well then I don't have to farm, and neither do my warriors. And that gives us more time for martial pursuits, which would allow us to defend our land, and possibly take other bits of territory. And ultimately, what we'd be after is having more territory than we need, right? Because if we have a surplus of food beyond what the workers, my warriors, and what I need to eat, well, all the rest of it, all that surplus, would essentially be converted into wealth and power. We'd be able to use it to trade for better stuff. I could use it to lavish gifts upon my retainers to keep them loyal. And all of this would also enhance my image as a powerful person, which could result in other areas wanting to come under my wing, or maybe even warriors from back home wanting to take the trip and serve under my leadership. All of that, in turn, would allow me to get more land, which would provide even more food, and so on and so forth. So that's how I'd do it. And it's entirely possible that that's what happened, given the culture of land ownership and slavery that shows up in the record later on. But as I keep mentioning, we don't have a ton of records indicating what exactly happened during these early periods. Maybe some of the leaders were more bloodthirsty and less pragmatic. But my guess is that it would make more sense to retain the pliable Britons rather than exterminate them. And from the genetic work that's been done recently, it seems that there are plenty of Brits that are descended from their ancient ancestors, the Celts, and actually even farther back. So I think that lends some weight to the fact that they were probably held on to, at least as slaves. But that being said, it was hardly a picnic for those British slaves. But that's a talk for another episode. So what you might have noticed in this little thought experiment is that power is concentrating around a single figure, the leader of the warband. And this is in keeping with what little we know of what was occurring during that time. So that might help us untangle the first portion of this mystery, of how the towns shifted in focus. But there's something else that might have caught your attention while we were talking about this. Namely, that we might be seeing how food rent began. Let me break this down for you. Thus far, we've spoken about the leadership, right? The leaders and the favored circle of the warlords, the group who were likely to become the free landowners, the churls, and the thanes, the higher status free landowners, or maybe even earls. But not everyone was lucky enough to own the land that they inhabited. Not even on a temporary basis like the churls and thanes. And as Anglo-Saxon society developed over time, some people had to rent. Most people did, in fact. Though renting wasn't like we think of it today. There's a good argument that this culture of food rent was born out of the feasting from the early days, actually, when the warlord or king would be hosted by his subjects at their own will as he toured his province. And this fits in well with the fact that there wasn't a static court during this period either, but rather the warlord or king would have traveled around his domain, and he would have stayed in the primary residence of wherever he stopped and expected to be fed while he was there. And of course, his men also expected to be fed. Now over time, that probably became codified into an official rent. But in those early days, was there a formal system of food rent? Was there a rule where a churl had to pay a certain amount? We don't know. Maybe it was on a case-by-case -case basis. But we do know that later on, food rent became much more rigid. And this food rent impacted all of society. For example, if you were a geber, which is basically a farmer, you wouldn't own any land. Rather, you'd be tending a quarter hide of land, probably for a churl or a thane, and bundled within that would be a homestead and some animals, but you would be required to work for the Lord on a number of occasions, and of course, you would also be required to provide food rent to your landlord. And as a bonus, you were also bound to the land for a term of service. Now, if you're a Kotsetlin, basically you're a higher-ranking tenant. And like the Geber, you would be bound, but you probably wouldn't hold as much land as the Geber, perhaps as little as five acres. On the upside, though, you wouldn't have to pay any food rent, and instead, you provide non-agricultural services for your lord's household. Now, this is a really important distinction to point out. Gebers worked in the fields and produced food, and they were low-ranked as a result. Kotsetlins, or cotters, might have had significantly less land than a Geber, but they were also ranked higher, and I don't think this is a coincidence here, they were also rather attenuated from the production of food. 
So what we're beginning to see is that odd dichotomy in Anglo-Saxon life where everything flows from food production, but also looks down on those who actually work the land to produce that food. And that's not the last that we'll see of that strange quirk of society either. Anyway, so if you were a Geber, you owed food rent to your lord. And food rents were typically done in kind. What I mean by that is that if a Geber had a farm where rye was grown and cattle and pigs were raised, the food rent would probably be rye as well as a portion of either the livestock or some of the beef and pork or bacon fat or whatever. If you were a beekeeper, you probably owe either some honey or some mead or both. Payment in kind. And this wasn't an exclusively Anglo-Saxon habit. The Welsh were doing pretty much the same thing, at least later on. And as you might imagine, if you were the landowner, you probably wouldn't have to work the land at all to feed yourself and your household. You might go hunting on occasion, but that wouldn't really be because your family desperately needed food. It would just be for sport. And this explains why a hide was measured to be as much as 120 acres. Seriously, one churl, 120 acres. That might seem like a large plot of land for a single household until you realize that it needs enough food to feed all the gebbers, the cotters, the slaves, and still have enough surplus to feed the churl and his household, as well as pay the king his food rent. Because everybody had to pay the king. We're talking about life centralizing around strongmen, after all. And in this case, the amount that you owed relied upon a number of factors, including your status, any special arrangements you might have made, which were rare, and of course, the amount of land you possessed. The base unit for what the king would demand from you was called a farm. A farm breaks down to being the amount of food and drink necessary to feed the king and his court for a day. But you might owe significantly more than a single farm, depending on your circumstances. And this rent was really, really important to the court. We can infer that because while other rights held by the king would occasionally get relaxed, in order to get out of paying food rent, you would have to pay through the nose. For example, the Bishop of Winchester paid 300 silver shillings for an exemption on just food rent. Again, this reinforces how central food was to Anglo-Saxon life. And for good reason. All that food flowing to the king allowed him to expand his own power base. After receiving his food rent, the king could in turn gift his surplus rent to others to increase his power and status, as well as to ensure continued loyalty. And we have plenty of references to exactly that occurring. Take the king's personal guard as an example. There is a huge amount of honor tied up in that position. And it's something that we're going to get into later on when we talk about status and warfare. But suffice it to say, it was a big deal. And in return for Asgard's selfless adherence to duty, because they were required to give their lives to save him if necessary, sort of like the Secret Service, in exchange for that, the king provided room, board, equipment, and of course, gifts. In fact, it was a huge knock against his status and prestige if the king was unable or unwilling to provide enough food and drink for his men. It wasn't just the availability of plunder that he would be judged upon but also the fullness of his warriors' bellies. Food's important stuff. And it wasn't just the warriors who were owed food from their superiors from time to time. Free laborers who worked in service to their lord but didn't have any lands to speak of, well, they were owed payment of food and clothing for their work. Even those who were not free, such as bondsmen, and even those who were slaves, were sometimes owed food from their lord. Now, sometimes it would just be to help get them through the harshest part of winter, and sometimes it, all it was was really a food allowance, but they still were owed it. Of course, how often that food actually was provided is still a subject of debate, and at least one of the contemporaries from the time, Archbishop Wolfstan, was certain that the bondsmen were being cheated by their lords. But the implication here is that there were surpluses at the various levels of society. There had to be, right? Otherwise, where would the payment of food rents come from? And it seems like there weren't just surpluses of food at the upper echelons. But to a lesser extent, even a Geber might have been able to get some surplus food together. And in that situation, of course, commerce would naturally follow. At least by the 7th century, we know that the trading of surplus food was occurring in towns in England. And frankly, it was likely occurring before then, since the reason that we know about it is that there were laws written to govern how trading would occur. It dealt with witnesses to trades and the like. 
So there's a good chance that the markets had been operating long enough and the problems with liars had become common enough that legal action had become necessary. So they might have been around for a while. Well, that tells us that food wasn't just the engine that powered the political machine, but from the emerging markets, it also tells us that it was the fuel that the entire economic structure ran on. It was even at the center of issues regarding freedom in some cases. For example, if a Geber had a really bad harvest, he might sell himself into slavery in order to survive the winter. Conversely, when slaves were freed, they were often given a little land and a homestead, with attached food rents, of course, so that they could feed themselves and wouldn't immediately fall back into slavery. Food was at the hub of everything. And actually, through all of this, we even start to see glimpses of the culture that was developing, all while the conquered British either sought refuge outside of England or worked in the fields. You see, what we have going on here is the development of a concentration of perceived wealth. Yes, perceived. You see, the system that they were working towards was basically a hegemony. It's a term that has many different aspects to it, but a couple big factors that led me to that statement is the fact that the land was held by a bunch of people and that the kingdoms were generally ruled through the implication of power and the shared belief that the king holds power rather than through any specific use of force. Think about it. The vast majority of people in England were at the bottom and were sending food up the ladder. The king was powerful because he had a lot of food and could muster warriors to defend him. Warriors who served him in part because he kept them fed. But he didn't produce any food on his own. He simply took it from the people at the bottom of society who continued to work in terrible conditions because they had the belief that the king was powerful and that they were powerless. All this despite their numbers, the resources at their fingertips, and their abilities. Instead, they just kept funneling wealth towards the king and continued to live in poor conditions. So when you look at it that way, the acquisition of food and the shared delusion that the king was powerful was largely what enabled him to continue ruling in the Anglo-Saxon era, which I think is pretty interesting. But you're probably saying, well, this is all very well and good, Jamie, but what does this have to do with the development of towns? Or maybe you completely forgot that I started out talking about towns in this episode. Or maybe you started daydreaming about Mazatlan as soon as I said Katzatlan. Well, snap out of it because I'm going to tie this all together. So towns, why were they different, and what does that have to do with all this stuff about land grants, food rents, and hegemonic agricultural economic systems? Well, to start with, land was centralizing on certain key individuals, and the value of that land was directly related to its ability to produce food. And we're seeing wealth, and by wealth I mean food, centralizing around individual figures who are perceived as powerful and are, therefore, powerful. And as we discussed, the food typically flowed from the work of the bondsmen and slaves up to the landed freemen, who generally possessed the land only as a temporary grant from their king, and then, of course, up to the king. From there, the king, and to a lesser extent the free lords, redistributed this excess food and wealth as required, and also as they saw fit. At every stage, there would be a level of concentration of wealth and power as the work from numerous individuals all coalesced around a single person. And those individuals might even choose to exercise their power through withholding food, and that was actually a popular way of enforcing laws. But in general, the way this worked is the food would flow up the chain and then also out to the favored members of that particular individual's circle. Basically, they were just providing wealth to their superiors and, of course, to their friends. Needless to say, if you were favored by one of these powerful figures, or you wanted to be favored, it would behoove you to be nearby. Now on the largest scale, you have the king and his court traveling throughout his realm. To be part of the court would be a choice position, of course. But if you weren't in the court, and you wanted to sell your services, or even if you were foolishly hoping to become adopted into his circle, you probably would want to be on hand for whenever he needed you. So society and economic power were centered around him rather than any specific location. But the king is sort of a special individual given the amount of travel involved. So let's talk about the other powerful landowners, like the thanes and earls. Actually, a thane is an excellent example because much of what was true for the king would also be true for the thane, but his location would be much more stable. And with so much wealth concentrating around him, it was simply good business for you to try and sell your services in his general area. 
I mean, if the Thane doesn't want what you're selling, there are plenty of other wealthy people nearby who might. And so people amass in a single location, and you start to have the development of a town. Only this time, it isn't based upon the protection of a legionary fortress, nor is it based upon the fact that the town was ancient and therefore people are already there in large numbers. Rather, this time, it was the wealth that was orbiting these powerful men that drew people in, hoping to get a slice of the pie. Just like in the Romano-British times, and just like today, people go where the jobs are. The difference in the Anglo-Saxon era is that unlike our current city-based focus where wealth congregates in a location because that's just where people are, and thus where you can find amenities and trade, and of course jobs, in the Anglo-Saxon era, it was the presence of individual wealthy landowners that provided the magnetic draw towards towns, rather than any inherent economic effect that the town itself had. And that was all thanks to a new culture that was growing on the island. One that was in for a hell of a shock once William showed up. But that's a story for another time. Okay, so last time we spoke about Anglo-Saxon culture, we were focusing upon the flow of resources and the inequality that resulted. In particular, I spoke of how those who created the wealth, or in this case food, were not likely to rise to the top of the pack. That power would be more likely to pass into the hands of the nobility, and for lack of a better term, the elite. Of course, we've already spoken quite a bit about the nobility and how they dealt with land and resources. But what about the religious figures? What was going on there? Beyond the booze, we really don't know much about them yet, and religion played a heavy role in this period. So let's talk a little bit about the churches, the monasteries, and the holy figures. And since we're going to be talking about religion, let's round it out with the Eighth Commandment. Or Seventh, depending on which version you're looking at. So let's get the show on the road. In the 7th century, we started to see the growth of monasteries and nunneries in Britain. Sometimes the land they operated on was rented, other times they were gifted big tracts of land and wills and such. And sometimes, ancient public lands were handed over to monasteries, such as what Eidwolf did in 746. But this shouldn't be too surprising. Ruling is tough business, and oftentimes it involves a fair amount of sin. So what is a God-fearing ruler to do? Well, more often than not, he would rule as he felt he needed to, and then try and curry favor with the Almighty through gifts. Obviously, if you could hand over land after you died, or hand over lands that weren't really yours in the first place, that was the best way to go about it. That way it wouldn't cause you too much inconvenience and allow you to continue focusing upon dealing with those troublesome neighbors of yours. Another way to get in good with God would be to grant freedom from the usual duties that the lay people had. For example, food rent and other dues. And this was also something that was happening around this period. So again, we're seeing the elites helping out other elites by giving them breaks on dues, rents, and that sort of thing. And this is actually very significant because from the subtext of the records that we've found, we can guess that food rent was actually incredibly oppressive at this point in history. And the worst part was that you could owe food rent both to the crown and to monasteries, nunneries, or other religious institutions. Oh, and then you also had to deal with corrupt landlords on top of that. So it was a mess. We can surmise all of this because Canute, upon taking the throne in the early 11th century, issued a series of laws, and his second law decreed that his reeves would only provide provisions from his own lands and not from the lands of his subjects. His reasoning was that the people had become, quote, too greatly oppressed, end quote. This was his second law, meaning that it was high on his list of priorities. The oppression that he spoke of must have been incredible. But anyway, back to the pre-Canute oppressive days. So monasteries and other religious institutions would sometimes get a free pass on their rents and dues, in addition to getting gifts and bequeathments of both goods as well as land. In the late Anglo-Saxon era, some of these monasteries would hold so much land that they would actually lease some of it back to the king. I shit you not. But that was generally pretty rare from what I can tell. Now, leasing land to the public, however, was not. And just like we spoke about in earlier episodes, if you were one of those renters, you'd have to pay your food rent. And so you'd be paying it to the monastery, and, until Canute came along, you'd also be paying it to the king. So they were basically just another landowner. And actually, much like the churls, thanes, and the like, monasteries behaved much like the other landowners in that they appeared to try and diversify their holdings so that they could be self-sufficient. Well, 
self-sufficient on their own lands. I mean, they still needed gebbers and slaves to work it, but in general, they wanted to have enough stuff that they didn't have to go out to bring things in. So overall, it's starting to seem like quite an industry. And here's where it gets really good to be an abbot. Some of the lands that were given to the monasteries included a provision in the bequest that would damn anyone to everlasting hell if they took even a portion of the land from the monastery. And while that might seem quaint to people now, such a curse was a real and tangible thing. In fact, there are stories of people who would refuse to even eat produce grown on the lands of a monastery for fear of being cast into hell. So they had a pretty good gig. And even if you weren't living on monastery land, you could owe food rent to a monastery thanks to a provision in a will. There are, in fact, a number of bequests of land that dictate to their heirs that they have to provide food rent to this or that religious institution. And as a result of all of this, a tremendous amount of wealth was flowing into these communities by the time the Anglo-Saxon period was in full swing. And here's the kicker. It seems that life within the monasteries wasn't all share and share alike. Rather, it was so bad that they needed to have a rule specifically indicated that everybody had to get some food and drink. It seems that part of the problem was that some of the people who entered holy orders came from privileged backgrounds where they were accustomed to having rather fantastic dinners. And they felt like there was no reason for that to end. They thought, well, we've got food here. I can keep eating like this. Why shouldn't I? So you had problems in the institution, and it seems like the best they could do was just say, well, everybody should be able to eat and drink. But regardless of all that, it seems that, on the whole, monks were doing pretty well. In fact, we see monks being caricatured as being overfed, and we've even found some skeletons that seem to indicate that at least the high-level members of the organization were, well, rotund, big-boned. They were fat. There, I said it. But it is fair to ask whether or not that's indicative of how all the monks were living. And frankly, we just don't know. We don't have very good archaeological evidence on that. But while we're talking about all the wealth funneling towards these monks, let's not forget also that there were tithes. The tithes were paid to priests and churches, and they were also paid to monasteries. At least later on they were. We're not sure how early it began for the monks. But in the early period, priests and churches were getting tithes, and by the later period, everybody was. And we see indications of tithes by the mid-7th century, and it quickly became formalized and mandatory. There were even very stiff fines for paying your tithe, and it seems that not paying your tithe was something of a problem, which I suppose shouldn't be too hard to imagine given how many individuals were already claiming a share of the harvest and the tithes were generally paid in food. When you think about it, it must have been incredibly difficult to keep your family clothed and fed with all the rents and tithes going out. And actually, the fines I just spoke about, as well as other religious fines, went, of course, to the religious institutions. So in general, you've got a lot of money going there. And the overall rule was you had to pay the tithe to, quote, the old churches to which obedience is due, end quote. The language right there should give you an idea of the strange situation that people found themselves in, with mandatory obedience and rents to two different institutions. So it's kind of a tough situation for them. But the tithes weren't all bad. Some of the tithe was traditionally used to aid the poor. In fact, if a member of the church misappropriated the tithe in some way, he could be labeled as, quote, a slayer of the poor, end quote, due to the fact that the destitute members of Anglo-Saxon society relied upon alms from the church. But of course, all this stuff is dependent on the period that we're talking about. Early Anglo-Saxon England isn't the same as later Anglo-Saxon England. So in general, when we're talking about this, try and keep this in mind. The earlier we go, basically the closer to the 7th century that we are, we're going to have more monks and less land, and as a result, less wealth. The later we go, the closer to the 11th century, we're going to have less monks and more land. It seems like they didn't quite have the concept of proportional growth worked out, does it? The lines were going in the wrong directions. Or maybe they were going in the right direction, since as far as we can tell, they were doing quite well as a result by the later periods. And of course, all this property and wealth made a tempting target for unscrupulous rulers. Bede complained about it a great deal and pointed out that this wasn't just theft from the church, but it was also from travelers and the poor. Boniface also wrote about similar incidents. 
The seizures were painted in the light of being murderers of the poor, given that the monasteries would aid the poor and aid travelers. But given the fact that some of the monks didn't even want to share wine with each other, it really does make you wonder how much of that was hyperbole, and if maybe the real offense that they were complaining about was their own eviction. It's food for thought. Okay, so I promised that we talk about the Eighth Commandment. So which one is it? Did you guess thou shalt not steal? Be honest, otherwise you'll be breaking the Ninth Commandment. Alright, so let's imagine you're some poor geber. Due to a lack of any reliable contraception, you have more kids than you can afford to feed. Your thane wants his food rent, the king's reeves want their share of the food, and the local monastery demands its food rent and tithes. And once all that goes out, you don't have very much left to feed your family with. Well, what if it's a bad year? What if it rains too much or too little? Well, maybe you'd have stocks set aside for just such an occasion. And that was something that people did. But what if you already ran through your stock and your lord wasn't inclined to help, which some sources seem to indicate wasn't exactly a rare situation, and the local monastery couldn't, or even worse, wouldn't, provide enough alms to get you through the winter? Now, you could probably skip meals and ease the clenching hunger pains with scavenged grasses, but you also have kids who are looking dangerously skinny. What would you do to keep them from dying? Would you hunt on lands you don't own? Would you sneak into town and take something that isn't yours? Would you raid another farm and take some livestock? I can't speak for you, and maybe I lack moral conviction, but I don't think there'd be much of a question for me. I'd do whatever I had to in order to feed my family. But on the other hand, I have always sided with Jean Valjean over Javert. Anyway, the point of this little side note is that these things happen. People find themselves in impossible situations where they're left with the choice of either damning themselves to hell, don't forget that hell wasn't a possibility back then, rather it was an empirical fact. Or they had the choice of watching their kids starve. Or maybe the circumstances are less elaborate. Maybe you just want something and you find yourself having exactly the right opportunity to take it. And so you do. Take livestock as an example. This was an economy based around food, and livestock in particular. And as a bonus, that particular economic unit was very mobile. You could just lead it away, provided that your timing was right. And cattle, pigs, sheep, well, they all look fairly similar, right? Even if someone was pretty sure that you stole their pig, how is he or she going to prove it? If you were a smart thief, you'd probably grab one without any distinctive markings, or quickly slaughter it so it couldn't be recognized. It isn't like you could just walk up and say, Hey, that steak looks a lot like Bessie. She was marbled too. What I'm getting at is that there was plenty of opportunity. And as for motive, wanting something that doesn't belong to you and then taking it isn't exactly a new concept. Hell, you could argue that some of the more powerful members of Anglo-Saxon society had acted upon that exact impulse against the local Romano-British, just on a larger scale. But don't misread me. I'm not painting thieves as heroic characters. Some people might have found themselves in sympathetic situations and did what they needed to in order to survive. Others might have been greedy, and maybe others were resentful at how much of their harvest was being claimed by those at the top of the ladder. What I'm saying is they weren't Robin Hood. They were people. People who weren't all that different from us. They had their own motivations and needs. They were just people. So regardless of whether it's distraught parents or greedy jerks, in Anglo-Saxon life, we have problems with theft. In fact, by looking at the little bits of written laws that we can find from this period, we know that the Anglo-Saxons had trouble with theft for almost as long as they were Anglo-Saxons. So what did the elites try and do to stop it? Well, as early as the 7th century, we have laws from Kent attempting to curtail this problem. Subsequent kings had similar laws, so we can assume that this was a pervasive and continuing problem for the Anglo-Saxons. And we'll actually get a little bit more into this when we get into class in the Anglo-Saxon state. But for right now, suffice it to say, like much with Anglo-Saxon society, theft can be quantified down to a monetary value, a fine, and one that depended, generally, upon the class of the person bringing the charges. 
For example, in the laws of Inna, you could be fined three times the value of the stolen possession if you were stealing from a free man, nine times the value if it was from a king, and eleven times the value if it was from a bishop. That's a hell of a deterrent, and laws acting as deterrents are nothing new. But the sliding scale of fines should be taken note of. The message here is clear. Are you getting it? The message is don't steal. And definitely don't steal from the elites. The laws also incentivize acting as an informant by providing a milfo, which was an informer's reward. So if you're a thief, you better watch your back. And to add an additional level of fear, the laws of Inna specify that if you're caught stealing livestock and taking it home, you could lose your share of the household property. This, incidentally, sounds vaguely familiar to the house and car forfeiture laws we have here in the U.S. Although in Anglo-Saxon England, the thief's wife might be able to retain one-third of the property if she can swear under oath that she didn't eat the animal. The reasoning behind this is that the wife was required to obey her husband, so although she's complicit in the crime because it was at her home, she wasn't exactly guilty since free will has, in essence, been removed from her. Now, if she and the kids were part of the planning and or theft, they could all be sold into slavery. Even little Hrothgar, who only just turned 10 years old, could be chucked into slavery if he knew his dad was a cattle rustler. They just didn't mess around back then. Needless to say, it was much safer to steal the animal and take it somewhere else in secret without your wife and kids knowing about it, and then maybe just come home with meat or whatever you managed to trade and lie to them about where it came from. In that situation, the fine would be 50 shillings. Still a devastating fine, but not nearly as bad as losing your household and your entire family into slavery. The extreme nature of punishments such as slavery would also make it very hard to gain accomplices. If you approached a co-conspirator, there's a good chance you'd just get turned in. That being said, it would still be pretty hard to prove the theft unless you had a hard and fast bit of evidence. But in general, how do you prove where a particular chunk of meat came from? Well, Anglo-Saxon law and order is something we're going to get into later, but part of it relied upon status. Remember how the Romans did it? How your innocence depended in part upon your status and how many supporters you had? Well, that's not exactly what was going on here, but status did play quite a role, as did your ability to pay. And here's where it gets ugly. If you were a low-class member of society, or God help you, a slave, there's a good chance they'd go straight for either ordeal by iron or ordeal by water to determine your guilt. Frankly, I'd go for ordeal by back rub, but that wasn't offered. Now, if you're a really bad thief, you might find yourself caught red-handed. There's no good outcome for that situation, but at the very least, you better hope that you are caught by someone with a cool demeanor and a lack of bloodlust. And good luck finding someone like that in Anglo-Saxon England. The reason you would want to get caught by someone who's calm and collected is because under Athelstan, it wasn't illegal to kill a fleeing thief so long as you didn't hold a vendetta against him and you didn't keep the killing a secret. Although, frankly, you were kind of screwed no matter what. Athelstan really didn't mess around when it came to theft. Under his laws, stealing anything worth more than 12 pence carried the death penalty, followed by a burial in unconsecrated ground, which is going to chuck you into hell. Even being accused of theft could financially devastate you. If you were accused of cattle theft under Athelstan, you would have to pay an oath of 120 hides in order to clear your charge. Well... That's if the charge was brought by an Englishman. If a Welshman accused you, you'd only have to pay 60 hides because, well, apparently Welshmen can't be trusted. I don't know. Anyway, because of all this, it quickly became law that to sell cattle, you needed to do it in the presence of someone trustworthy, such as a priest, a reeve, a treasurer, etc. And if you didn't have such a person present, you could forfeit the cattle and get fined 30 shillings, which was no small amount. Also, when you went out to buy cattle, you were supposed to put the village on notice that you were going to buy them and then let the cattle graze in a common pasture for five days to let the village get to know the cattle. There were also laws that indicate that you couldn't slaughter a cow without having two trustworthy people on hand who could swear it was yours, and you had to keep its hide and its head for three days, which has got to smell fantastic, just in case someone wanted to inspect it and determine whether or not it was actually theirs. 
There's an obsession when it comes to cattle ownership and cattle theft, isn't there? We have a variety of incredibly strict, not to mention oddly specific, laws surrounding cattle and actually food in general. And the laws were stratified, with the people at the top gaining the most protection from them, while those at the bottom gaining little or no protection. Well, when thinking about this, don't forget that food was one of the three pillars that we've been speaking about. Food was incredibly important, and in large part it was the foundation of society. So the distribution of food needed to be controlled or things could fall apart. Thieves, in their own way, tended to circumnavigate that structure and, as a result, threaten the institutions that had developed upon that stratification. But at the end of the day, those with power and resources did what they had to to maintain their edge. So when we look at these draconian laws regarding theft, we need to keep in mind who had power, who was writing these laws, and how threatening theft was to the power structure that had been created. Okay, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash britishhistory. And you can also head over to the website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And we're on Twitter. Just head over to Twitter and search for at British Podcast. All right. Thanks for listening.